Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Vasey View and I'm delighted to have as my guest this week Poppy Gustafsson, OBE. Poppy is the Chief Executive of Darktrace, which is uh, one of the UK's best known uh, unicorns and under her leadership it's reached uh, almost two billion dollars in value. It's Europe's ninth fastest growing European company according to the financial times. Poppy is a qualified chartered accountant. She previously was the company's chief financial officer and she's been the Verve Clico Businesswoman of the Year. Darktrace is very well known because of its leadership in cybersecurity, which is also a great strength for the United Kingdom. So I'm really looking forward to talking to Poppy about the secrets behind Darktrace's amazing success and also about cybersecurity issues in general. Brilliant. Well, welcome, uh, Poppy. Thanks so much for joining us um, on this podcast. And obviously, Darktrace is uh, a very prominent company at the moment because of its uh, unicorn status and also at the apex of a very hot subject, which is obviously cyber security. So I'm just going to start with that very annoying open question. Tell us all about Darktrace. When you read about Darktrace, it says in a slightly James Bond-esque way. It was started in Cambridge with the help of the British intelligence services. But I'm sure you're going to put it into context and tell us the story of Darktrace. No, absolutely. And Ed, I love chatting about this. So it's my pleasure to be here and have the opportunity to tell you all about us. Um, yes, Darktrace, it's a applying artificial intelligence to the challenge of cybersecurity, which is, of course, a hugely uh, relevant topic in today's world. And it came together really by a sort of group of people that were frustrated with a sort of historic approach to cybersecurity, which has always just been to build a massive wall around your business to sort of try mm. and keep out the bad guys, which of course is completely flawed because one, it assumes that you can identify who those bad guys are. Like what happens if it's an insider, for example? And the second thing is that they do is the higher you build the walls, the attackers just frustratingly go out and buy a longer ladder so and find their ways over that. And so we wanted to start with a fundamentally different approach and to say, OK, right, well, let's assume that a um, cybersecurity breach is inevitable and instead focus our tensions and identifying that breach as and when it occurs. And I've got a brilliant team of mathematicians based over in Cambridge. Uh, full of double PhDs, and they developed an AI that basically replicates the human immune system, if you like. So if you think about our own bodies and our immune system, we've got this wonderful layer of skin that keeps out the vast majority of viruses and bacteria, and it's brilliant. We wouldn't want to be here without it. But sometimes we get ill, a virus gets into our bodies, and as and when it does, it comes up against your immune system and your immune system is hugely complex but it has at its core that innate sense of self so by knowing what is you it can then identify other even if it's a virus or bacteria that your bodies have never seen before so dark trace it replicates that human immune system so it sits within your enterprise and sees the sort of ebb and flow of what is going on around you to build up that sense of self for your business it's sort of unique digital fingerprint, if you like. And only by understanding that can it then spot those early signs of a cyber breach that are 
when those behavior within your business changes sufficiently for you to say, okay, that's no longer in keeping with the digital fingerprint, no longer aligned with that digital sense of self. And then your AI layered over the top of that can autonomously identify, investigate, and then autonomously interrupt that breach at machine speed. Um, and that machine speed is an incredibly important element of what it is that we do today. Um, and has driven a lot of our success. And here we are seven and a half years later, we've got 4,000 customers all over the world and 1,300 employees. So you can see that this has been a business that is solving a solution or providing a solution that is very, very real for many organizations throughout the world. You neatly dodged there the involvement of British intelligence, Poppy. What was it that they were doing day in, day out? Like these are people that had a deep and intimate understanding of, of the cyber landscape. They saw they were on the real edge of observing nation state attacks and what was going on in there. And it was these people that came together and said, look, we've got to start with the assumption that at some point this breach is inevitable. They were very, very aware of the very real situation that Nation states are using cyber warfare and espionage to their sort of political advantage. And that's something that was real then and continues to be more so real today. Can I ask a series of um, stupid questions, which is my role on this podcast? And by, by, the time I finished, by the time I finished asking them, you'll say, was this guy really at one point the cyber security minister for the UK government, which amazingly I was in some kind of capacity. But uh, if you... Th if, for the sake of argument, I'm a customer of Darktrace and I plug in your AI, kind of how quickly is it going to work? Because I th this point about digital fingerprint, you, you make the point in, in, in your TED talk about, you know, you spot the cyber breach if your one of your computers is trying to connect with Madagascar and you've never had any dealings with Madagascar. Um, you know, in 24 hours, is the AI going to kind of understand how your company works? I mean, I know that's a really basic question, but I'd love to know. No, not at all. And there's no such thing, I think, as a stupid question. It's an area that is moving very, very quickly. Um, look, our maths is looking at thousands of variables within a business at any given point. And time is a hugely important variable. The longer it's there, the better and the richer that understanding gets but it's still only one of those many, many variables that you are looking at. Um, and without wanting to get into the sort of complexity of some of the mathematics in there, there's a lot that you can do around understanding the context for a particular aspect of your business and how it fits in with the rest of it. So for example, you might have a number of devices in there that behave very similarly to each other in nine out of 10 ways. But on that last one out of 10, it, you've got one outside that's behaving very, very differently. And you've not gone in, you've not told the AI, hey, these are all printers, but it can see that they behave in the most part very similarly, but one of them is behaving out of the keeping of the sort of rest of the pack, if you like. And that's what we call sort of clustering by sort of grouping devices that behave similarly in that same way. And then when they, you have something that behaves out of, out of line with the rest of the pack, you can identify that still as anomalous, even though you haven't necessarily had that sort of passage of time. That being said, as I said, the longer it's there, the better and the richer it gets. But we are absolutely able to identify anomalies and breaches within a very short space of time, which is what we do day in, day out. This is something that we're very, very regularly having conversations with our customers about. And so, I mean, the, the nature of a cyber attack is basically people trying to get into your system. 
And so what tends to happen is people will send you a virus and it could be, you know, the Word document that somebody opens on their desk, at which point, as it were, the code is released and it's basically allowing the bad person to get access to your systems and take stuff out just as you would if you were burgling a house. And basically your thesis is however strong the locks on your door, that is going to happen, at which point you want to stop the person getting out with your stuff. Yes, but it's not just about stopping people getting into your system. It's mm -hmm. stopping people taking stuff out of your system because yeah, exactly. the bad guys aren't always necessarily someone from the outside world that's known to be a bad threat. They could be they could be a disgruntled employee. They could be just, it could just be human error. It could just be someone that's legitimately within your business that has made an error and is doing something inadvertently. It might not necessarily be malicious. Um, an example that I often use is we were at a business and they had a, uh, a vending machine that dispensed drinks machines and it was part of their um, staff canteen and people could use their employee cards to swipe and get a discounted kind of drink from this vending machine and what we observed was that every time they did that swipe the vending machine was sending all of their information out to the vending machine supplier but on that information was also the information on the employee's card so their national insurance number and their payroll numbers and things like that now that You're wasn't wrong. malicious that wasn't mm. an external threat trying to get in. It was just human error that was configured incorrectly. But as a, a business that is, you know, conscious about cybersecurity and retaining sort of privacy of their personal employee details, that is something that you, that's behavior that you would not want to occur and you'd want to be aware of. And that's a great example for me of something that wasn't necessarily malicious. It wasn't intentional. It's not a bad guy trying to get in, but it's a great example of how if you don't have those sort of basic cybersecurity hygiene and principles in place, you might inadvertently allow a situation where protected data can leave a business. Yes, that's one of the things I learned when I was cyber security minister. The first thing I learned, and it's a kind of sort of counterintuitive thing, because you think of cyber as this very sophisticated programmers trying to get into your system, but actually it's human error. It's the person connecting their personal phone to their work computer. I mean, does, does Darktrace get involved in giving companies the kind of basic advice about how to how their employees should behave with technology. And, you know, one of the things that we felt really strongly about in government was the law firms, the insurance firms should be advising companies. There should be somebody on the board responsible for cybersecurity. Is that kind of corporate governance and just basic HR stuff lacking in British companies? Is it something that should be part and parcel of what you do for companies as well? It's it's absolutely lacking. And being someone that's working in the cybersecurity industry, it is something that we asked and we, we talked to our customers and prospects about. But the reality is, is that we're seeing news every day about organizations being hit by ransomware. And the worst thing is, is that we're almost used to it, especially today where we're hearing all the news about COVID and we've got some brilliant organizations out there that are trying to develop vaccines and we're seeing the fact that you know other organizations are trying to break into those businesses and steal some of the IP surrounding those vaccines, we kind of just accept that it's a sort of a normal part of the world in which we operate. But the reality, this is really, really serious. Where you're seeing sort of public sectors, councils, universities being breached, this is 
this is shocking. And I think it's going to be a big issue for the sort of public sector in particular, because they're really seen as a bit of a sort of soft underbelly, um, especially when it comes to things like academic institutions. These, these are organisations that define themselves by the quality of their academics and their research and how much they invest in the sort of intellectual side of being at the cutting edge and the best at what they do. But yet we're not seeing that same investment in protecting that USP and making sure that those businesses can be the best because we're retaining that knowledge within the organization where it comes to sort of councils or public services. We're not investing in making sure that people's personal data is protected, that those councils continue operating and, and running. You, I mean, there was a case recently I can't remember which particular council it was, but in the UK where there was a big breach and that council had to resort to going back to pen and paper for a period of two weeks or so. Like this is like, that's not okay. We shouldn't be accepting this as a society and we need to sort of demand better, better basic principles, I think, from a lot of those sort of public, public organisations. Yeah, I think there's a massive, massive gap in the market in terms of working with um the public sector let's talk a bit about some of the kind of most high profile hacks and the kind of organizations that need to start taking responsibility so one recent attack was twitter where the accounts of very high profile personalities were hacked to um you know they put out bizarre tweets i think elon musk was one barack obama was another that actually terrified me because bluntly uh, if you hacked Donald Trump's Twitter account and said, I've just launched a missile strike on North Korea, in 20 minutes, you could have started the Third World War. And yet we find that the people behind this apparently were kind of teenagers in their bedroom, which often turns out to be the case, bizarrely. Talk us a bit about what kind of responsibility platforms Facebook, Twitter, etc., have, given that mm. very prominent people have accounts which have basically a sort of padlock on them. I, I I agree. I mean, you're right. The level of sort of influence that can be reached through these sort of social media platforms are phenomenal. And we find out that they're a bedroom hacker and society sort of just rolls their eyes and thinks, oh, well, and sort of shrugs it off. It's sort of as yeah, okay teenagers behavior. will be teenagers. <laughs> Te yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, that, that's that, that's really not the case. We shouldn't be so accepting of this. And I the Twitter hack, that was an example of spear phishing. So uh, an employee within Twitter was sent a very, very targeted email that apparently gained them access to the backend systems, which essentially granted them access to any Twitter account, like even that of potentially of a US president, as you, as you point out there. Uh, and extending that sort of idea further about sort of start, potentially starting a world war, even sort of smaller, softer things about saying, oh, you know, OK, well, don't head over them to the polls today don't vote for whatever yeah. reason you can genuinely influence political outcomes and so it's yeah. hugely important and relevant um and these social media giants have just got to be asking themselves are they using the best in class technologies to defend their systems and their users from cyber attacks because it's not just those businesses that are, are exposed it's not their information it's our information as society and users and that level of responsibility is needs to be taken very, very seriously, and they need to make sure that they are using best in class. And there's a very significant obligation on those on those on those platforms to make sure that they're doing so. 
And you mentioned briefly local councils. Um, I think the council you were thinking about was Redcar and Cleveland, which 135,000 residents were left without online services for a week. A hospital in Germany hit with an attack, which uh, they think might even have caused the death of a patient. I mean, this is ransomware. This is a whole new industry, basically, that has sprung up where people can hack your system and hold you to ransom. Yes, so ransomware is typically malware that goes into a business um, and it might be some poor unsuspecting employee of the council whose job it is to deal with a vast volume of, of emails and they inadvertently click on a link, for example, or download some attachment that introduces that, that virus into the council. And then what that virus does is it encrypts parts of the network and essentially holds it to ransom. It says you can't, we can't, you, you can't access your systems without paying a, a ransom typically done by Bitcoin or something um, such as that, which is anonymous. And this is criminals going after organizations that they seem as this sort of weak underbelly of society where they can get access and where they're more inclined to require those systems to be operational and so may possibly um, pay that pay that ransom. But what is happening is the fact that they are able to get into these organizations is attackers are still winning far too many battles for this control over these digital infrastructures and there needs to be a bit of a cultural change away from thinking that cybersecurity is some it person's job in in the back office to being yeah. something that's relevant to all of us and all of yeah. us have you know obligations to hold ourselves and our sort of principles and routines and basic hygiene and getting that right day in and day out rather than seeing it as always continuously someone else's job within the organization uh, i mean we talked a bit about the the twitter hack and what you could potentially do if you got uh, hold of a high profile account but you also you know you talked when i was slightly teasing about the british intelligence services um you know we, we have got used to a world where we do understand even as laymen and normal citizens that there are hostile states who see the cyber landscape as the new dimension of warfare. So clearly, in terms of defence, cyber defence is now not just in the corporate world, but in the nation state world, a vitally important uh, aspect now of public policy. And it involves not just, I, I suppose it involves the potential to take down infrastructure. I mean, I always make the point that if we if say the uk is in inverted commas invaded it won't be planes flying overhead it'll be the electricity system of london going down uh, but it also involves the stealing of intellectual property as well what what what, is, what what should typical government be doing in terms of protecting its citizens from cyber attacks you're right the western society is one that relies on its sort of digital infrastructure and Everything we do is reliant on technology in some way, whether it's our city's traffic light system, smart cities, electric cars, the internet, the way that we're communicating now over the internet, our ability to access customers and markets, especially in today's world of remote working, so much of this sits on, on a base of technology and anyone that would like to exert influence over that society, that is gonna be a place where they would like to pull the rug out from beneath our feet. How would we operate without access to that technology? Would 
cities continue to run without that infrastructure? Would we still be able to have energy supply? Just basic things such as, I remember post the big Maersk breach, talking to one of the executives there, and they were saying they were trying to pull their sort of instant management uh, or crisis management team together afterwards. And they pick up their phones to make a call and realize that all of their telephone directories are on a shared directory that they no longer have access to. And no one has anyone's telephone number anymore. And you suddenly realize the extent that we are reliant on that digital technology. And a nation that's looking to exert influence, as I say, that is going to be somewhere that they will try and to, to, uh, to get control. So when it comes to nations, I think what the UK in particular do well is they, and especially things like the National Cybersecurity Centre, is really emphasising the importance and just bringing it to our attention and the forefront of our minds. And I think the UK in particular has uh, is a particularly strong at emphasising the importance and the relevance of cybersecurity in today's world. But then just making sure that we are deploying best in class, whether it's technologies, whether it's investing in people and their capabilities, uh, all around those and identifying things such as critical national infrastructure, which could be a particular weakness for us and making sure that those businesses understand their obligations, not just to them as a business, but to wider society to make sure that they are defending themselves to the best of their ability. I mean, I do get the feeling that the UK is kind of in the top tier when it comes to cyber or cyber warfare, to use a slightly blunt phrase. The UK understands the relevance. The UK understands its reliance on technology and it sees itself as a real champion of using technology to advance its position in the world and to think about how we're going to sort of grow economically over the coming decades and technology is an important part of that and therefore being able to protect that technology is equally as important and that means investing investing in things like AI we've got some of the best universities in the world where the AI is really cutting edge we've we've mm. almost done the hard bits that are yeah. necessary to bring some of these sort of best in class technologies it's now just making sure that we continue to emphasize them and invest in them So I'd love to hear your thoughts on the cyber security industry, as it were, because obviously Darktrace sits at the apex as the sort of poster company for cyber in the UK. But my sense is that there's kind of clusters in Cambridge and indeed in Cheltenham where GCHQ is based and companies like Ripjar and so on. I mean, it does seem to be one of the sectors, again, in terms of the private sector industry, where the UK has built up quite a big, uh, area of expertise. Absolutely. We've got some phenomenal technologies coming out of the UK when it comes to cybersecurity, and that's because of our world-class universities, institutions such as sort of cyber, uh, National Cybersecurity Centre and things like that that are really sort of investing in their people and sort of encouraging sort of cyber analysts and then go on to sort of create some fantastic and, and very innovative businesses. Um, we've left too much of the innovation into the hands of the attackers. So historically, all of the innovation has come through the bad guys. They're the ones yeah. that are developing the latest and greatest in malware. They are the ones that are out there creating polymorphic malware that can change shape within a business so that it can get through the sort of historic defenses. And we need to put the power back into the control of the defense side, which means that we need to be on that front foot of innovation and simply 
playing that cat and mouse of constantly trying to keep up with the, what the attacker is doing mm. is not good enough, especially when the attacker and the advances in technology is such that, that it's happening at such a pace that being able to keep up and being able to respond within months, weeks, days isn't going to be quick enough. The extent of damage can be done is, is very significant today, mm. even within a matter of seconds. And yeah. so we need to shift that and we need to be the ones that are innovating on the front foot and getting ahead of what the attacker is doing. And by using things such as artificial intelligence and focusing on the business rather than looking at the threats of yesterday is a really good way of doing that. And that is what we aspire to be doing here at Darktrace. Um, but AI is something also that level of innovation will be brought to the attackers as well. And I think it's not going to be long before we start seeing the hackers of the world using tools such as artificial intelligence to try and gain an upper hand, whether it's trying to go into a business and use AI to sort of blend into what that business is, whether it's using AI to sort of autonomously create very, very targeted and precise and convincing spear phishing attacks that mean that it's far easier to convince a organization to click on that link or download that malware that it wouldn't have otherwise done. And so in that way, it really you have to be using AI on, on that defense side and then it becomes a sort of machine versus machine whose mathematics is good enough. Um, but luckily, given our sort of the UK's strength in in AI and mathematics, um, I'm a firm believer that is a battle that we can win. It is kind of amazing and very scary in many ways. I mean, we, we did a podcast with Nina Schick, whose book on deep fakes has just come out. and you know, you can now use artificial intelligence to effectively mimic somebody's voice and make a phone call to say, this is the CEO calling, can you transfer X million dollars to this account? It's urgent. I mean, these kind of threats are just mind blowing. Absolutely. Like it's, it's technology exists today that can read your emails and understand the way that you communicate and whether it's casual or whether it's formal and mimic and replicate that they can they can read your diary. They could see that, you know, you and I are speaking today and send yeah. something autonomously to say, hey, looking forward to chatting later, click this link for a briefing. And yes, exactly. all of that process could be entirely automated using artificial intelligence, very, very little cost for the attacker. Yeah. And they could send out millions of these emails and it only takes one person exactly. to fall for that and click on that link and they have been able to deliver on what it is that they're trying to achieve, which is to gain access to an organization that they wouldn't otherwise have access to. I've just got a slightly random question based on everything you've been talking about, Dark Trace. Presumably, it doesn't really fit the narrative of this pod, but presumably the Dark Trace's tech can also be used, using cybersecurity in the widest sense of the word, to kind of police a company, and I don't say that in a sinister way, for fraud and so on. So we, we've been talking in a mildly conventional way about cyber, hostile attackers coming in. But actually, if, if you know, for the sake of argument, the chief financial officer is siphoning off five grand a week uh, quietly, presumably this kind of AI pervading a company system can spot stuff like that. AI is a fantastic way to understand how humans interact with the digital environment and understanding patterns in vast, vast swathes of data at machine speed is what AI does. And 
we are applying that to the challenge of cyber and understanding how people interact daily with their sort of digital business and understanding as and when that behavior changes. But taking that into the next level, understanding what is the context of those transactions? What is occurring? Is it fraud? Absolutely, that is something that you could use AI to unlock. However, at Darktrace, we're very much focused on that sort of cyber defense aspect. And can I ask, uh, this is a, a couple of sort of more general questions. Um, and Mike Lynch uh, recently said, uh, you know, the sale of ARM has been mildly controversial. And Mike Lynch is one of your investors. And I'm not saying for a minute you, you therefore have to agree with him, but uh, was saying that, you know, the, the, the British government should think more about protecting its uh, key assets companies. I mean, you're an international company. Do you, do you feel that we, we have this constant debate about, you know, everything ends up being bought by the Americans, to put it bluntly. This podcast has a large American audience, so no offence meant. Uh, but, you know, we don't build and protect great British champions. You are now, Dark Trace, a great British champion. Do you feel strongly that you should remain a British company, stay in Britain? It's interesting. I think slightly random question, but I just thought given what Mike had said, I'd no, ask you. It's it's interesting and there's sort of two aspects there. So the first is sort of the commenting on our assets as as a as a part of the UK. What are our technology assets? How do we champion ourselves in a world where having a strong technology hand when it comes to international relationships is an important part of having influence and control. And yes, I absolutely think that the UK should be investing to make sure that it has those big technology champions that makes it, that brings it to the table in these big international conversations and negotiations. But then it's the question about how do you grow these British champions? And this is a question that, that I get quite a lot and it's something that's sort of very relevant. And yeah. historically, it's always been a question about finance. And, you know, there's not enough businesses out there that are willing to invest in an organization from its 100 million to the billion, that sort of scale up stage of the business. And yeah. I dispute that. I think the reality is, is that money travels and it you can still get investment for that scale up. And it's certainly not an issue when it comes to the scale of ambition that British organizations have. I chat a lot to colleagues and uh, other businesses around the UK, and there's no lack of ambition for those. But what there is, is a lack of predecessors from whom to learn the arms mm. of the world, the autonomies mm. of the world that have built these huge technology giants that have stepped, that have walked that path. Being able to tap into their experiences and knowledge is huge. And that's something that we have been very fortunate to have access to, but I suspect that it's that lack of experience and knowledge within the UK that is hindering us rather than a lack of, of the finance. I totally agree with you. I mean, I think, you know, uh, George Osborne, when he was Chancellor, Finance Minister in the UK, used to talk about creating Silicon Valley in the UK. And I always used to say we have Silicon Valley in the UK. What we don't have is finance, which you referred to, but also that organic system of successful founders who've been there and done that, investing their money in startups, but also their vast experience. And it's to a certain extent, without wishing to sound defeatist, I think it's a kind of organic thing that will just kind of happen over time. And we in the UK, I think are lucky to be 
well ahead of most of our European competitors, but we can't invent Silicon Valley overnight. No, I think you're right. I think it is an organic thing, but I can sense that there is a growing technology capability. And I feel like the sort of aspiration, the ambition for the technologies companies that I'm seeing and speaking to is growing, uh, especially if we reflect in the sort of events of the last six months or so. And, you know, often these crises breed opportunities and technology is a huge part of allowing, allowing us as a nation to sort of pivot and find a different way of working and technology is what has unlocked that and I, I think that we will see a lot of really really cutting edge innovation technologies go on to create a new way of working and interacting and hopefully uh, that sort of sent that growing sense of en uh, potential energy and ambition that they see will see a new generation of organizations that have perhaps bigger ambitions, bigger capabilities than the ones that we have seen before. Um, annoying question to ask you, but I can't let you go without asking it. Uh, you're a woman. Nicole Egan, your chief strategy officer, is a woman. You are two women at the top of a highly successful tech company, which sadly is still all too rare. What are your, do you have reflections on that in terms of um, how we can continue to increase the number of uh, successful women entrepreneurs? Uh, I often get asked what it's like to be a sort of women, a woman running a technology company, which is a really difficult question to answer because I've never been a man running a technology <laughs> company. So I've, 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 I've got very Nor have I. But if I'm honest, I think my answer is, is the same to the one around why we're not seeing more billion dollar, uh, billion pound companies coming out of the UK. And it's, it's setting the example. It's seeing people that have forged the way and, and gone on and done it previously. And I don't necessarily see myself as a woman working in tech or a woman CEO. I just sort of see myself as myself and getting on and doing the job. But hopefully in some small way, all of us that are doing this can set the example for the next generation. And if they want to, that they see that this is a path that is available and open to them. Um, at Dark Trace, I have to say it's sort of, well, we've never been a sort of, uh, we've never been here to sort of advocate for sort of gender diversity it's sort of something that's happened sort of accidentally along the way and we have inadvertently become a very very well balanced company that uh, where women are very strongly represented throughout the organization even in our R&D team in Cambridge we've got some brilliant women that are working on this cutting edge of AI and it's just not an issue but it takes effort and energy to get there I think and I can remember very early on in my career I went to a conference and it was, there must have been sort of 300 people in the organization, uh, sorry, in the, in the crowd. And there must have been sort of 20 speakers on the stage. And all the speakers were men. And there were probably 10 women in the audience. And I found myself just sort of psychologically, like I was sitting there with my arms crossed, like almost turning my back to it. I found that subconsciously I was resisting it. And it felt like I was part, like it was a club that I wasn't part of. And I, I turned my back to it and it sort of felt like it wasn't for me. And I think it's that sort of sense of belonging, like where you don't feel it, it doesn't bring out the best in you. And I thought, I never want someone to walk into my organization and feel self-conscious about that. And I just want them to be able to get on and do their job and not really be aware of whether they're a man or woman. And hopefully that is something that we have achieved at, at Dark Trace. But it's something that's ongoing, it's continuous. There's always another stream, there's always areas that you can do better and there's always something that we sort of monitor. Um, but I would love to see a next generation of sort of 
brilliant women following in our footsteps, creating the next round of billion dollar businesses. Well, let me ask you a gender neutral question, as it were. I said that I'm a man who's never run a tech company. I'm always fascinated by founders and the courage you have. It strikes me that you know, if you said to me, you know, seven years ago, oh, I think we should set up a cybersecurity company that does, uh, you know, enterprise immune system that uses AI to spot cyber threats. I, my reaction as somebody who's deeply cautious and has no courage whatsoever would be, oh, somebody else must be doing that. Or how on earth do you think you're going to succeed, you know, in such a competitive field? What was it that gave you the sort of courage to say, I'm going to go with this. I think we can actually pull this off and become a category leader. It's it's an interesting point. And I reflect back and you almost see how naive you were all those years ago with how much you didn't know. And kind of tying it back into that point about experience and how you help shape and create these brilliant startups and turn them into something much, much bigger with experience as it's also a weight of knowing all the ways that it can go wrong and all the things that, the, all the reasons that it won't work. And I cast my mind back to when we first founded Dartrace and there was a joy in going into this business ignorant of that. We were lucky in that we had a lot of investors and advisors in those early days that were able to keep an eye out in the background to make sure that we didn't fall in any of the major pit holes that they knew were surrounding us. But there was a joy in going in, not necessarily being weighed down by being aware of all the things that could go wrong. Yeah. Um, we were creating something new. We were walking along a path that hadn't yet been created and we were finding our own way. But almost that made it easier. Not having done this before meant that everything was new. We questioned everything that was done from simple things like early on, it was the norm seven years ago that whenever you were running a proof of value within a business, it would always be three months and three months was the time it took to demonstrate your technology working. And so we started out and we were like, yes, we're going to do a three months because that's what everyone else is doing. And it feels like the norm. And then we were trying to think about how we can sort of shorten our sales cycle and we we're trying to get some sort of deals done in those early years. And one of our brilliant employees had no experience. She was a fresh young grad. She said, but why are you doing a three-month show? Why not just do three weeks? And we all sort of looked around and thought, mm, that's a very good question. We know that we're more than capable of demonstrating our technology in a very short space of time, for reasons I've articulated earlier on this. Let's do that. And there's a joy, I think, in being able to sort of shake off the way that things have been done and just go out and do it your own way that's completely new without sort of feeling weighed down by the way that the market expects you to be able to do something. So I think that's a very long and convoluted way of saying that, you know, seven years ago, yeah, it wasn't really courage for me. It was, there was a naivety about it as with any startup, but there yeah. was a joy in that naivety. And it really helped us forge our path in doing something that was fundamentally different to the way that anything had been done before. Well, I take my hat off to you, salute you, bow down to you, because you've um, achieved great things. Dark Trace is... Uh a wildly successful company, as you say, it's uh, carved out a niche in cybersecurity, 4,000 customers, many more to come. And uh, I know that you must get bombarded all the time with tedious requests to do podcasts and interviews. <laughs> so the fact that you spent 40 minutes with me talking about all this stuff, I am enormously grateful. Thank you oh, so much, Poppy. 
My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. <laughs> Brilliant. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Vasey View, a production of Kindred Media. 